Now, anyone who knows anything about young children know that they learn by imitation. By seeing and copying the behaviors that they see being modeled for them. Whether it's behaviors being modeled by their parents or other young children or strangers on TV, children learn much through imitation. This is, of course, why it is crucial to model good behaviors to one's children. Good parents do their best to control their own behavior around their children so that the children don't pick up the worst parts of their character. And of course, good parents try to control who their children play with. Good parents also don't allow their children to watch any and everything that's available for them to watch on TV. All this is because we know that as far as examples of character and behavior go, there are good ones that can and should be imitated, and there are bad ones that must be avoided. And this simple principle of imitating what is good and avoiding what is bad in the context of the Christian life, that is our focus for tonight. Because just as parents take care to guide the behavior of their children, the Apostle Paul here took great care to make sure that his spiritual children, the Philippians, knew what kind of models they were to look for and which to avoid. And so what proceeds from verse 17 of chapter 3 is Paul's admonition to the Philippians to be imitators of him and also imitators of others who themselves imitate the good characteristics and beliefs that the apostles have taught. Now, right away, some might think that that sounds conceited. After all, what makes Paul so special that he should be imitated? Well, first of all, it was his duty to be an imitatable example to other believers. In 1 Peter 5, Peter says that elders should be examples to the flock. A leader in the church should be the sort of person that indeed could be held out as an exemplary Christian. That much is made clear from 1 Timothy 3, where Paul outlines the qualifications for leadership in the church, which basically boils down to being a mature Christian. So, it was Paul's duty to be a model Christian. Because as a shepherd of the, of the flock, all eyes would be on him, seeing how he led and thus following him. So it's not conceited that Paul would point to himself as an example that the Philippians could imitate, since that's all part of being a good leader and a good shepherd. Furthermore, it's not as if Paul saw himself as the pinnacle of perfect Christian unity, uh, maturity, I should say. That wasn't the basis for him saying, join in imitating me. Remember we saw last time that Paul openly admitted to being imperfect, yet still straining toward the goal that was eternal life with Christ. So Paul wasn't prideful. He knew of his weaknesses and his imperfections. Thus when he says, join in imitating me, we are to understand him in the context of 1 Corinthians 11, where he says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Copy me insofar as I have copied Christ Jesus. So we can see that Paul's intention was that believers ultimately imitate God rather than man. So with that said, we can look at the reason for Paul warning the Philippians to imitate him. It's made clear in verse 18, which says, For many of whom I have often told you, and I'll tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. There were people in Philippi who were bad examples who were to be avoided. Their characteristics and mindsets were not to be emulated in any way, shape, or form. Now before we go on, I want us to become familiar with the way that Paul structures his warning. First, he tells the Philippians to 
imitate good examples. And then he goes on to warn them of the bad examples by describing their wicked characteristics. He then concludes by contrasting what was seen in the bad examples with truths about those who are good examples. And thus the words of encouragement in chapter 4 verse 1 flow from that. So let's start looking at these bad examples. Now there's some debate over the exact identity of the person who's being referred to here. Some prefer to see Paul as talking more generally about immoral people who call themselves believers. Yet the view that I think makes more sense because of the context of chapter 3 is that Paul is still referring to the group known as the Judaizers. The group that he was initially talking about at the beginning of the chapter. When he says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers. Just to remind you who the Judaizers were. They were the group who professed faith in Jesus, but insisted that in order to be saved, one needed to convert to Judaism. One needed to keep the Mosaic law and adopt all Jewish customs and traditions. So, men needed to be circumcised. You needed to follow Jewish dietary laws, observe the holy days, worship only at the temple, and so on and so forth. And of course, as we saw back in November, this was heresy of the highest degree. Since it destroyed the gospel, which says that salvation comes by the grace of God, through faith, and not through works of the law. So it should already be in our minds that this is a dangerous group because of their doctrine. And the situation is only made worse when we remind ourselves that this group claimed allegiance to Jesus. And this is what made the Judaizers so dangerous. This is why Paul felt the need to warn the Philippians not to imitate them. It's the same reason he warned the Philippians to look out for them in verse 2 of the same chapter. Because of their claim to be believers, one could end up following their sinful doctrine and practices. Thus Paul commands the eyes of the Philippians to be active. At the beginning of the chapter he says, Look out! Mark and identify those evildoers and beware of them. And now he ends the chapter by again commanding the Philippians' eyes. Look at me instead. Look at all those who follow the example I have set by imitating Christ Jesus. Don't imitate those Judaizers. Paul's goal of averting the Philippians' eyes away from the Judaizers was necessary because the Judaizers were not the sort of people who would openly say, that they opposed Christ and everything that he stood for. Rather, they were the sort of people who could mislead you because they only ever had good things to say about Jesus. They claimed with their mouths that they believed in him, yet, upon closer examination of their beliefs, it was seen that they were, in fact, enemies of the cross of Christ. Enemies who, by their beliefs, opposed everything that the cross represents. And so this is why Paul urges the Philippians to be to model, rather, exactly what he saw, what they saw from him. Because there were other models who, if one were not careful, could be mistaken for born-again believers who were worthy of imitating, when in fact they were not. And so this is Paul's concern. And frankly, this is an un, uh, uh, understandable concern that we can all relate to. These days we're all too familiar with uh, persons who are Christians in name only. Those who have the outward appearance of being a follower of Christ, yet examination of their beliefs show that really they're enemies of the cross. And some of these people are pastors with large congregations. They speak well of Christ and 
They seem so kind and loving. Surely they must be good models to imitate. But sadly, those who follow and imitate them end up doing things like shunning suffering for righteousness' sake, opting instead to copy their role models, obsession with health, wealth, and prosperity. Those who imitate them end up chasing after earthly pleasures instead of heavenly treasures. And we all know the kinds of so-called Christians I'm talking about. And if not, I'll name them. We have people like Crafro Dollar, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer. These people can seem to some to be Christians because they pray and sing and sing spiritual songs and they call in the name of Jesus. But Paul identifies them as wicked by the characteristics that we're soon going to look at. And so he says to us, do not imitate them. They don't model good Christian character. Instead, follow me as I have followed Christ. Thus, we must be on the guard for those who seem to be wearing sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. And I want us to be really sober-minded about this, because I just mentioned some people that most of us already recognize as evildoers. So it's possible that we can let our guard down, thinking that such obvious heretics could never get so close to us. They can never get so close as for us to be in danger of imitating them. But we can't do that since such people can very easily come in among us and get so close to us that because of our affections for them, we end up imitating them. I say that because it seems to me that many of the people who Paul is warning us about were close to both himself and the Philippians. Look at what Paul says in verse 18. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Why the tears? Well, perhaps their bad examples were leading people astray and this caused Paul great anguish. That's certainly possible. But consider this. Perhaps it was the case that many of these Judaizers appeared at one time to be fellow compatriots in the faith. Perhaps both Paul and the believers in Philippi had formed close bonds with some of them and had really come to care for these people. And thus, when in the course of time it was revealed that the faith of these men was not genuine and they began to more blatantly manifest their wickedness, true believers like Paul would have been left with sorrow and tears for those whom they had come to care about. That's a possibility. So what that means, quite frankly, is that we need to keep close eyes on our friends. Again, because we tend to imitate each other. Antics, mannerisms, things like that. But we also imitate beliefs and ideas. Ways of living. And that gets more likely the closer you are to someone. So ask yourself. Do the people who you are closest to, the ones who profess Christ, do they manifest the characteristics Paul lists in verse 19? Is their God their belly? Do they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things? It's going to become clearer whether or not that's the case as we look deeper into what Paul says about these enemies of the cross. And my hope is that we can learn to recognize their bad examples when we see them. So firstly, they were enemies of the cross of Christ. And let's think about what that means. The cross has come to be known as the symbol of Christianity. 
Because the cross represents the suffering of the Son of God for the sins of the world. The cross was where Jesus paid our debts and bore the wrath of God. Being nailed to it by Roman soldiers at the demand of the Pharisees. The cross was where the love of God towards us sinners was seen most vividly. And the cross was where Satan and sin were put to an open shame and dealt the decisive blow. And so the cross, that rugged, blood-stained, ugly, terrifying instrument of torture and death used by the Romans to execute people has become to the whole world a sign that there is forgiveness of sins in and through Christ Jesus. That if a man puts away confidence in self and rests faith upon the Savior who died on that cross and rose to life again, he would be saved. I frequently marvel at how God took such a horrible image. A man nailed to a cross and left to die. God has taken that image and turned it into a symbol of hope and love. After hearing what that cross represents, who could hate it? Well, let me continue. That cross upon which the only begotten Son of God died was a symbol that man's sin was of such grisly consequence that God himself had to pay man's debt and no work that man could muster on his own could suffice. So you can see how offensive that cross would be to people who rested their trust in themselves and their law-keeping. The cross says to the proud and haughty, you cannot save yourself. You need to look upon the Son of Man who was lifted up on this cross and believe in him to be saved. But the Judaizers rejected that idea. They insisted that the cross alone wasn't sufficient for salvation. If they had their way, the faith that we preach, grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that faith would be stamped out and all of us would be living under the old covenant right now. And the cross would be emptied of its true power. This is what it means for them to have been enemies of the cross of Christ. But these days, we still have enemies of the cross of Christ in the same vein as the Judaizers. Those who say we should keep the Mosaic law to varying degrees. But we also have those who are enemies of the cross in other ways. Think of these so-called prosperity gospel preachers that I mentioned earlier. They are actually repulsed by the idea that God's people should suffer in any way. And they believe that God wants you to seek after your own happiness and pleasure in this life. So the truth is, they hate the cross. Because that cross also represents dying to oneself, hating one's own life, and following Christ through trial and suffering. Our Lord said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and what? Take up his cross and follow me. Jesus wasn't talking fun and games when he said that. A cross is a brutal instrument of pain, Suffering and ultimately death. It's not a toy. So while Jesus wasn't literally commanding us to take up crosses and carry them around, as he was using a metaphor, he meant that following him requires self-sacrifice and at least the death of one's own personal ambitions in favor of working for the glory of God. And at most, it requires suffering and maybe even literal bodily death at the hands of a world which is hostile to God and his ways. 
The world hates our master, and so they hate us too. So you see, none of these name it and claim it prosperity gurus would ever put themselves under the weight of a cross like that. Under persecution like that. They're not going to do it. They hate the cross and they hate that it represents that through many trials and tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. They are not willing, like Paul, to share in Christ's sufferings and become like him in his death. They are not willing to fill up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the glory of God. And thus, they will never know Jesus and the power of his resurrection. Therefore, Paul says of them, their end is destruction. And that's pretty straightforward. If you reject the cross and all that it represents, you are an enemy of it. And you will face the wrath of God in hell forever. For those who exhibit the characteristic Paul lists here in verse 19, there's only one outcome. And Paul goes on to say that their God is their belly. And their glory and their shame with minds set on earthly things. These bad examples weren't driven by the Spirit, nor did they serve the Spirit. Rather, they were driven by their fleshly impulses. As unregenerates, they were controlled only by the flesh and its desires. Regardless of whether those desires were after sensual lusts or the lust for power and praise from men. So ultimately, they served themselves. The God of self was enthroned on their hearts rather than Jesus. And they glory in their shame. They're proud of that which makes them evildoers. We already saw in November that the Judaizers took great pride in their law keeping. They insisted on circumcision as necessary for salvation and celebrated that which Paul called mutilation of the flesh. Ultimately, they gloried in their self righteousness, which for sinful man really is his shame. Imagine coming into the courts of a king wearing rags covered in dung. It's shameful. But that's what they did by boasting in their own efforts uh, at law-keeping. More broadly, we know that there are professing Christians who boast about, say, how tolerant they are, all the while condoning and even encouraging things like homosexuality and all other sorts of immorality. They take great pride in what is shameful. Paul says, do not imitate such people. And lastly, Paul says that their minds are set on earthly things. This last statement really just emphasizes what he has already said. Where is their God? It's here on earth. It's themselves. What do they glory in and take pleasure in? Their own earthly efforts at righteousness. Rather than seek heavenly rescue from sin, they choose instead to try and make a way for themselves using earthly means. Eating only certain foods, spilling the blood of animals to wipe away their sins, mutilating themselves. Brothers and sisters, all these things in the Mosaic Law had their purpose from God, to be sure. They serve to give us categories in which to think of our sin and God's holiness and show us our need for cleansing. But they were mere shadows of what was to come. The fullness belonged to Christ Jesus. 
The Savior from heaven. Not from earth. From heaven. Friends, those who favor what is earthly over that which comes from heaven are not to be imitated. This is Paul's warning. So, I know my message tonight has been pretty bleak so far. And that's to be expected when talking about sin. It's a sad thing to see how men make themselves enemies of God and rebel against Him. But now this is the point where things should get brighter as Paul gives the contrast to these enemies of the cross. He says in verse 20, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. After pointing out those whom we are not to imitate, Paul shows us who we should imitate. Because all of the wicked traits of the bad examples are inverted in the traits of the believer. Rather than being enemies of the cross and having our minds set on earthly things, with earthly desires and an earthly focus, true believers are citizens of heaven. That's where our affection is. That's where our treasure is. That's where our God is. Let me explain this idea of heavenly citizenship. And recalling the context in which the Philippians lived should help us grasp the significance of what Paul was saying. Remember that Philippi was a Roman colony, and so it had the same rights that were granted to cities in Italy. They used Roman law, they were exempted from the taxes on non-Roman citizens, they dressed like the Romans, but most importantly, their residents had Roman citizenship. Now, if you look at a map, you see that Rome was hundreds of miles away. Yet, here these people were, living as citizens of a faraway land. They identified not with where they were currently, but with Rome. That was the mentality of the people of Philippi. And so Paul draws on that idea to say to the believers there, Listen, don't be like these Judaizers who seek to save themselves by earthly means concerning themselves chiefly with matters of food and drink and festivals and holy days and such. That is how citizens of earth think. That's how worldly people think. But you are citizens of heaven. You don't seek a savior from the earth where you are currently, but you await a savior from heaven. That faraway land to which you belong. Thus the Philippians were to understand that despite their current location and circumstances, with all of its different cultures and influences trying to assimilate them, assimilate them, they were citizens of another land and were to keep its culture and follow its laws and imitate those who come from there. And most importantly, just as any citizen of a great nation is entitled to certain rights, the greatest right we have as citizens of heaven is rescue from sin at the hands of our King. Jesus Christ. And what a powerful rescue it will be. When he comes, he will transform our bodies to be like his. This is the promise of the resurrection. This is the promise of eternal life and the prize that is the upward calling of God in Christ. This, brothers and sisters, is the destiny of the believer. So see again the contrast. The end of the enemies of the cross of Christ is destruction and hell forever. 
But the future of the believer is life in the new heavens and new earth forever. And our Lord Jesus does all this, Paul says, by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. And what power is that? It's the power of Almighty God. The one true God will display his power on the day that he returns and will put to shame all those whose God was their belly and worship themselves. On that day, all will know that despite their sinful delusions, there was never any other God besides Yahweh. All of these magnificent contrasts make it clear whom we ought to imitate. Brothers and sisters, what kind of examples do you follow? Who do you imitate? Do they hate the cross of Christ by belittling its power to save and insisting on salvation by works? Or do they love the cross and seek to cling to all that it represents, trusting alone in Christ? Do they love themselves and seek after their own interests? Or do they treasure Christ above all else? Do they take greatest pleasure in their own righteousness, full of pride? Or do they boast only in Christ and His work? And are they earthly minded? Seeking out earthly treasures, earthly rewards, earthly solutions for their problems? Or are they citizens of a higher land who eagerly await higher treasures, higher rewards, and a higher salvation? Do they cry, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. Where do they look to for salvation? If you find that your thoughts, deeds, and desires tend to take after those who are enemies of the cross, then be warned. Their end, their destiny, is destruction. So turn from your sin, your self-righteousness, your idolatry, your worldliness, and place your trust in Christ alone. Believe that He lived a perfect life, offering to God the obedience that you failed to offer, and that He died on the cross to bear the punishment that you should have borne yourself. And believe that after three days in the grave, He rose to life again, and is now in heaven interceding for us. Believe that He is coming again to save us finally from sin. Repent of your sin, turn from it, and put your faith in Christ. For those of us already trusting in Christ, seek to be like Him by modeling those around you who are mature in the faith. Get close to believers who know the Word. Believers who can teach you something by the way they live. Get close to them. Get to know them. Spend time with them. Do as Paul says and keep your eyes on them as they walk the narrow way through the narrow gate that leads to Christ Jesus and eternal life. Paul's hope for the Philippians in all of this was that they would learn from good examples and so be unmoved in their devotion to the Lord and live lives worthy of the gospel of Christ. The first verse of chapter 4 says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. If the Philippians followed Paul's instructions here and took care concerning who they imitated, they would indeed continue to be as joy and crown. Paul could continue to rejoice in their salvation 
And their God-glorifying lives would continue to be a reward for all the labor that he did on their behalf. So for us today, we ought to be moved by what we see here. We ought to be moved by how much love was being expressed by Paul through his admonition. How we wanted the Philippians to achieve the goal of steadfastness in the faith. So as their brothers and sisters in the faith, we too should seek the steadfastness in the faith that comes from imitating mature believers. Following those who follow Christ. Growing in the faith. So that even we can serve as good examples for those who are to come after us.